Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Hello, this is The Guardian's Brexit Means podcast, doing its level best to make sense of the fundamentally nonsensical since the summer of 1960. Oh, sorry, 2016. It just feels like a century or so. Anyway, in case you've been somewhere entirely else for the last few weeks, it's all starting to happen. Or maybe, as so often with Brexit, it just feels like it's all starting to happen. Who knows? But at any rate, things definitely should be starting to happen, because in roughly a fortnight's time, it will be October the 31st, which is, I'm sure you'll recall, when Britain is supposed to be leaving the European Union. It now looks very likely that it won't be, of course, but quite what will be happening around that time is very much up for grabs. Happy days. So let's have a quick recap of what's been going on over the past couple of weeks. After insisting to the Tory party conference that Britain was ready for a no-deal Brexit, Boris Johnson repeated his pledge that we would be leaving the EU on the 31st of October, come what may, do or die, whatever the circumstances, etc. And then he unveiled his final offer, in quotation marks, to the bloc. Swiftly dubbed two borders for four years, the Prime Minister's plan to replace the controversial backstop was immensely complicated, but it needn't detain us for too long here, because although it won cautious support in Westminster from both the hardline Brexiters of the European Research Group and the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, the EU27 said it was complete rubbish, not remotely acceptable and not even worth discussing. So for a short time, it looked like we were doomed. Brussels was politely declining any further talks until the government came up with something that looked just a tiny bit sensible. Number 10 was busy playing the blame game and briefing furiously and, of course, anonymously against Brussels, the French, the Irish, the Germans, pretty much anyone it could think of. Recriminations started flying undiplomatically back in the other direction and everyone was agreed there was absolutely no chance of a deal before Halloween. Then Johnson met the Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, in a country house hotel on the Wirral. And miraculously, there was a pathway to a possible deal. The Brexit secretary, Stephen Barclay, zipped to Brussels to meet the chief EU negotiator, Michel Barnier. And before you could say, OK, guys, let's forget all about a customs border on the island of Ireland after all. And while we're at it, we'll maybe have another think about the Stormont Lock too. Intensive talks were underway. The pound was surging like there was no tomorrow. And a matter of days before the crunch EU summit meeting on October the 17th and 18th, an agreement was supposedly back on. What had changed? Will it work? Could there possibly be a deal before the end of the month or even the end of the week? Does it stand a chance of getting through Parliament? What on earth happens if it doesn't? If it does, how different might it be to Theresa May's deal? And let's not forget this one, would it actually be any good? With me to answer these and a host of other equally important questions are in the studio Georgina Wright of the Institute for Government and The Guardian opinion writer Raphael Baer and on the line from Brussels Guardian correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you. Um, Jennifer, let's start with Johnson's so-called final offer. Now, I know I said it needn't detain us, but it's helpful to know a little bit about it so that we can see how it's changed since. So could you just talk us through, preferably in words of no more than three syllables, the idea behind two borders for four years and why the EU27 were so immediately sort of opposed to it? 
So two borders for four years, or perhaps came two ideas for uh, four sessions of talks with the EU because, as you say, it's now uh, it's now somewhat historic. It's now uh, uh, no longer the plan the government favours, but it does it help us understand where we've got to where we are mm. now. And in some, the UK had made um, a big concession, uh, and one of those uh, one concession was that the government agreed to enter an all Ireland regulatory zone for agri food and manufactured goods. And that was a big piece of the puzzle in order to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. So it all sounds great, but there was a but. And the but was that Boris Johnson had proposed um, what the government called a storm at lock. Effectively, that meant the DUP would have a veto on these arrangements ever coming into force. And even if the arrangements did come into force, the DUP would have a veto every four years on whether they remained in force. And for the EU, that presented all sorts of problems, not least that Stormont has now broken all world records mm. for a parliamentary assembly not sitting uh, and doesn't have any any role at the moment. But uh, but also EU negotiators were stressing the, the big problem is that, it, you know, it just puts that whole sort of regulatory alignment into question. And then it means it's up for grabs every four mm. years, if, even if it does come into to play. And that means that uh, it's it's just constant uncertainty for business and for and, and Michel Barnier quickly decided that it was completely unworkable the other part of the the, the puzzle was the two borders element and effectively mm. that was there was going to be a, a border between great britain and Northern ireland when it came to goods regulations so you had that all ireland uh regulatory zone that i mm. mentioned but then you're going to have a, another sort of ireland uk border on customs and while the british government was saying there was going to be no hard border and no checks they, uh, well, they were saying they would do checks on company premises or possibly even in some sort of official locations once you dug into the small print that was. And, and for, for Ireland, this was a real no-go. They were saying it's it's not good enough to have checks five miles away from the border. Uh, it, had all the, it had all the problems of a hard border for the Irish government. Meanwhile, for the EU, they saw all sorts of other problems with the, the huge list of exemptions uh, and uh, reliance on technology that the, the British government seemed to be banking on so all sorts of familiar ideas such as a mass exemption on on customs rules for for small and medium-sized businesses uh which for the eu could really be a smuggler's mm. charter so that was the second big problem that the eu had with the uh with the two borders for four years proposal, proposal. and it was all dismantled in pretty brisk style by michel barnier a week ago or now, now just under a week ago at the european parliament in brussels Right, exactly. So two key problems, which uh, is you sort of summarise them as the customs problem and the consent problem, I suppose. Um, and Georgina, as as Jennifer says, there was, I mean, there was some very firm language coming out of Brussels in response to this plan, wasn't there? And Donald Tusk was talking about, you know, Britain playing a stupid blame game. Michel Barnier called it uh, not the basis for an agreement for Guy Verhofstadt, the, uh, the, the head of the, of the sort of Brexit steering group on the in the European Parliament said not remotely acceptable. Varadka, all the same kind of thing. I mean, how how much was this, of this was sort of real exasperation on the EU 27's part, and how much of it was an attempt, uh, you know, to to really push Britain over the uh, over the cliff towards understanding what the problems were and what they would need to do to reach a deal? Mm, uh, I'd say probably, actually, almost definitely. Um, a bit of both. I think from the EU's perspective, um, Theresa May's deals were 
as we're calling it now, was definitely the outcome of compromise. Mm. Um, it reflects months and months of negotiations um, that were very complex and at time quite tedious. So from their perspective, they said, OK, if you if we, we recognise that it's not going to make it through the UK Parliament, but then you, the UK government, must table proposals on how you'd like to improve it. Now, Brussels is usually dead um, in August, um, but negotiators were asked to go on holiday in July. They were sat there in Brussels waiting for the pr- these proposals and they just didn't, didn't come. come. And so there was this real sense of, if you are serious about renegotiating, why why have you not tabled anything? And why is it that we're rushing through this now? But I think, you know, amidst all of that frustration, um, there is a real, real willingness um, to reach a deal. And that's why the talks are still ongoing right now. Hmm. Okay, Raf. On the UK side, there was an awful lot of talk when Johnson, fi- when this final offer kind of finally appeared, um, about him sort of somehow knowing that it wasn't acceptable. And it was merely a sort of a ploy to allow him to head full steam towards no deal or at least engineer early elections. I mean, was that the case, do you think? Did he really want a deal at that stage? And if so, why table something that was, you know, manifestly was never going to be able to fly on the EU side? Yeah, I've never personally been persuaded that Boris Johnson's own Uh, sort of first choice would be no deal, that he had had somehow decided that he wanted no deal and everything else was just a confection to try and engineer a blame game Um, for two reasons. Uh, One, um, I just don't think anyone who who, who has occupied the office of a prime minister and and understood what no deal would involve and had the briefings, you know, mm. just not just the economic stuff, the security stuff, really sort of looked down, into, stared into the face of that Gorgon, uh, they would be petrified. You just wouldn't want to take it's responsibility for that. Stuff. It's very serious yeah. stuff. If you're an advisor, if you're, say, Dominic Cummings, for example, mm. you know, the, the Prime Minister's, one of the Prime Minister's most influential advisors, slightly different. You, you can take a slightly more cavalier, just let's burn everything down and see what comes out of the ashes kind of approach. It's but not I don't your think, head that will be on the block. Exactly. I just don't think, and you're not, and Prime Minister, it, it, it is a responsible office. You've got to sort of meet the Queen every week and explain whether you are, in fact, completely ripping up her her, <laughs> her kingdom and all the rest of it. So I don't. I, but I do think that he made a very fundamental mistake um, in July when he sought the Tory leadership, which was to believe the strategic argument that he was making to the members, which is if we just look wild and crazy enough and go full kamikaze in our sort of approach to this, mm. then suddenly things become available from the EU that weren't available before, and that and that was. A, that's a very old, well, old as in three years, established mm. sort of hard Brexit misunderstanding of, first of all, the power dynamics between a block of 27 mm. countries that has got a very clear understanding of what it sees as its strategic interest and one exiting country. So he misunderstood that dynamic. He misunderstood the nature of, of a bluff in the sense that your cards are open. Everyone can see. So it's not a bluff. Yeah, I mean, it's not much of a negotiating technique to say, um, you know, give us what we want or we'll shoot ourselves in the foot. Exactly. So whereas <laughs> that had been you know, the, the, the understanding among the, on the sort of Brexit wing, hard Brexit wing of the Conservative Party had always been that the reason Theresa May's deal was inadequate in some way was because she just hadn't been fearless and aggressive enough and she'd listened too much in mm. Brussels and she should have just listened less. Uh, and what they didn't, and they, they, I understand why they had to take that view because the alternative is seeing structural strategic weakness in the entire concept of Brexit, and and they don't really, obviously, they don't really want to take that on board emotionally. And just what I'd add one more important thing: so you then get to a situation to where we are, sort of now mm. or as of last week, there were really two different schools of thought in in Downing Street. One was. 
um, the sort of the bluff is kind of working or it would be working really well if those pesky parliamentarians hadn't done mm. their surrender mm. act, as, as the prime minister mm. likes to call it. But ultimately, really, we want a deal still holding on to the cards, the sort of duff hands. You scooped it up back from the table, holding it to your chest, saying, I'm kind of bluffing, but we want a deal. Mm. And in another faction, which came much more from the culture of the sort of vote leave referendum campaign, uh, which had been brought into Downing Street uh, as a sort of to turn number 10, essentially into a a ferocious campaigning organisation, not a government, which really didn't care and and just wants to win, wants to get the UK out Mm. and is thinking entirely in parochial domestic electoral campaigning terms. And what seems to have happened one way or another is that you know, particularly in the response to the to the in quotes final offer and some of the very aggressive, almost hysterical briefing, anonymous briefing that came out of Number Ten around that, mm. that 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 Boris Johnson himself and some of the people who still believe in obeying the law, having relationships with allies, having a long term strategic project of conservative government, slightly reined in the wild burn everything downside and said, actually, you know what, we were bluffing and we want a deal. I mean, just to add very briefly to that, I think um, that was. When you heard strong language in the EU, it was this sense again, oh my goodness, the UK government thinks that the outcome is going to be a gentleman's agreement. It's not. I mean, yes, you need political will. And yes, we've agreed to renegotiate. But it's a legal and technical process. And we need proposals that are going to be what they like to call operational. So, mm. will work. so it's not just about having will. It's about, you know, translating that, that into technical concrete reality. and will work. Correct. Exactly. OK, um, Jennifer. So moving swiftly on, a couple of days later, then the Prime Minister, the, well, the Prime Minister of, Brit- of Britain and uh, of Ireland, Ireland, uh, Johnson Varadkar had their little tete-a-tete and suddenly um, there was this light at the end of the tunnel. Now, it's important to say, I suppose, we don't know for sure what was said during their meeting and we still don't know, in fact, the exact content of precisely what's being discussed in Brussels as we record this podcast. But it seems that the British government made some pretty major concessions. What do we, what do we know or what do we think, what do we know that they actually were? What is it that made the difference? I mean, what, as far as you're concerned, what sort of was the, the British offer that is now being d- discussed in Brussels? Well, this meeting in, in the Wirral really uh, came as a turning point. It, it may be that in a, a few months and years time, we look back on this as, as a major turning point on Brexit, or it could just be another sort of avenue that didn't quite lead anywhere. It's it's hard to tell at the moment. But certainly the meeting, I think, came as a surprise to, to everyone. Nobody had high expectations of this meeting mm. between, uh, uh, between the British and Irish Prime Ministers, and yet it suddenly uh, changed changed everything, and, and or at least changed a, changed a good deal in the, the dynamic of talks that had been stuck at that point. And, and what was the change? Uh, I think a key thing, that the key thing, was Boris Johnson uh, promising that there would be no customs checks on the island of Ireland. Mm. And that was really the unequivocal... Um, sort of guarantee that the EU um, has been seeking. And now that that unlocked a process of seeing if that can be put into a, a withdrawal agreement, seeing if that could be made legally operational. So that was really decisive. It's also emerged over the weekend that Boris Johnson has made another big concession that he has agreed to abandon this idea of the DUP veto that we were talking about mm. earlier. So he's he's already looking to work at some slightly different way for the Northern Ireland institutions to be more involved in in overseeing this uh, um, this regulatory um, arrangements on the on the whole um, island of Ireland. 
Sorry, go on. Sorry, no, I was just going to say, because that's important. I mean, the, 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 the EU27 are, are, are very happy for there to be some kind of consent mechanism, aren't they? Or, or for the sort of the voice of Northern Ireland to be heard in the process. Yes, and it's something they'd actually already worked on with Theresa May. So she got some slightly sort of beefed up guarantees uh, from, from Jean-Claude Juncker earlier this year when... when uh, when the deal initially began to, to run into problems. And I think it's something that EU feels they can work on, that they, they don't want to be seen as sort of riding sort of roughshod over the over the interests of Northern Ireland. But nonetheless, these the, the, there are certain red lines that, that still exist. The EU does not want to grant the right to Northern Ireland to have some unilateral exit mm. mechanism from whatever regulatory system there is, because otherwise that, that doesn't provide the, the certainty of having this so-called all-weather backstop, that is the, the insurance plan that's always there that will guarantee that the border is open. So they don't want a unilateral right of exit and they still don't want a time limit. So that was also something that came up in the in meeting of EU diplomats last night. Again, it was expressed by, by, by a diplomat from one large member state that they did not want a time limit on, on these arrangements. So that's, that's constraint is still very much there, but they are ready to look at slightly different ways of involving Northern Ireland institutions. Mm. But the uh, the big problem is that that track of the talks is, is very much stuck because there are, there's still a very major sticking point on customs uh, and how this whole uh, this whole system might work. be made to work yes yeah, I've got to speak up there are, there are sort of three levels of, of difficulty I think that need to be sort of separated out and teased out in relation to this so one is the the very important point that, that Georgina made about the difference between a sort of a political agreement and a legal arrangement so the UK side particularly you know I'm some, I'm, when Boris Johnson moved into Downing Street really struggled to understand actually understand what the EU was saying when it talks about protecting the integrity of the single market mm. um, so and just didn't really get that 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 that's not something you can that easily fudge. You know, either if you have a customs border, it has to be enforced. You can't set up a customs border with a view to not really enforcing it because mm. that would be a bit icky on Northern Ireland. Mm. It's either a border or it's not. Um, so they didn't really understand that. Uh, then there's the second problem is that actually the destination is so fundamentally different that Boris Johnson has made clear that you know, at the end of this, mm. where he wants the UK to be is this sort of deregulated, I mean, crudely speaking, the kind of Singapore on Thames mm. model. That's the economic purpose of his Brexit, which isn't what Theresa May wanted. But if that's what you're signalling as your sort of target destination, you are setting the UK up as a sort of regulatory competitor. You get into all these questions of what they used to call sort of social dumping and having a, a sort of a, a jurisdiction on the doorstep of the single market, which is really threatening to undermine or do things competitively to the EU that particularly the French are very worried about, a lot of other Europeans are worried about as well. And so that actually suddenly makes the sort of border arbitrage question much more live. And if you're, you know, so suddenly the question of what the final endpoint is suddenly gets brought really live at this point in the negotiations, which with basically two, three days to go, you just can't settle. There's no yeah. way you can settle wow. that in the next, even if you can settle a withdrawal agreement. And then just the third point is then the personal trust element. And the fact is that Boris Johnson goes into rooms and tells people what they want to hear because that's very much his temperament. Um, and whereas with Theresa May, you had a dynamic where she was stubborn and then she would yield, give a point. She would then give Ollie Robbins, her chief negotiator, 
quite a lot of creative leeway to enact that. And therefore, the EU27 could go, OK, we finally got this concession and we've got someone who can sort of make it operational mm. in the way that Georgina described. In the relation, in the Boris Johnson sort of David Frost dynamic, you have the opposite. You have someone who says one thing. You know you can't believe anything he says. And no one believes necessarily, or maybe, Jennifer, I'm wrong about this, but that David Frost has the same creative leeway and capability and possibly even people say literally the sort of intellectual heft that Ollie Robbins had to, to turn find, to whatever find a concrete solution, a practical an working solution. That's interesting. Um, Georgina, having had all this optimism at the end of last week, we ran in, ran, then ran into something what felt feels like a bit of a brick wall over the weekend. Um, you know, we went into the tunnel, um, sort of kind of negotiators lock in, but at least it was progress. Uh, and then after you know two, a weekend of talks on what what they're now calling having having had the the, the the two borders for four years Brexit, we now have what's called apparently called Schrodinger's Brexit, the new proposal. <laughs> the EU is not you know is understandably said to be somewhat baffled by uh, by the by this. British proposal. Barnier says that very little progress was made. The talks may need to continue until next week after the summit. Um, So those, yeah, those still, those still two, those two sticking points are still customs and consent. They're both, they're both there. Absolutely. I mean, it's obviously very difficult to know what was discussed behind closed doors. Um, And, you know, I can only rely on on what I'm reading as well in the report. But clearly, um, I think, Jennifer, you said this um, last night that Barnier apparently said to EU ambassadors, look, we want to give UK negotiators one last Mm. chance this week. So we should um, press forward with with discussions. But obviously, there are key sticking points, consent and, of course, customs. And you're absolutely right. It's about enforcement. It's about protecting the single market. And ultimately, it's not just about saying, do you know what, let's come to some form of agreement and we'll hash out the details uh, down the line. Um, for th- that's just not mm. how the EU functions. And I think when we're thinking about the different pieces of the Brexit deal puzzle, um, you know, we, we've got to think that one, we need proposals. Um, and the EU have said, uh, you know, there's some good stuff in there, but, but it's not complete. Um, the second thing you need is time. Uh, we are running out of time right now. Um, the third, of course, was Ireland's consent. And clearly last week's um, uh, meeting between mm. Varadka and, and the Prime Minister was, you know, encouraging, met, met, that, condition. met yeah. that condition. But then you've got all the other member states. Um, and they're also going to have their own concerns that they'll want to table, particularly if, um, as Rafael said, you know, the UK wants to deregulate mm. in future and sort of, you know, very much um, veer away from, yeah. from the EU and model. And that is something that they're going to be we'll thinking at very seriously. Into the, at Correct. this stage, yeah. Um, Raf, is it fair to say that the government's kind of between a bit of a rock and a hard place on, the, on, on in the talks now, in the case, in the sense that if you kind of boil it sort of right down to things, to right, right, boil it right down politically, that any kind of customs arrangement that's going to be acceptable and approvable by the EU27 is kind of by definition going to have trouble getting through the Commons and the, the ERG and the DUP and vice versa. Anything that's going to get the wholehearted approval of the of the you know the Brexiteers isn't going to pass muster in Brussels. Or or I mean or is the is the political dynamic really starting to shift in Westminster now, do you think? Uh, uh, yes and no. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's really unhelpful. Look, the, the, for, for as long as we've been doing this and we've all been talking about it, the sort of Westminster parlour game has been the same. Isn't it? Can you count up to 321 MPs who will vote for something that mm-hmm. is called a, a Brexit deal? And the answer to that question has always been no. And every time someone's tried, they they failed. You know, someone being Theresa May. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's the numbers aren't there. Uh, the, the the shifting the, the 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 two moving parts in this are 
Labour MPs who really want Brexit done, mm. um, uh, some more explicitly than others. I, I mean, I think Jeremy Corbyn counts as a Labour MP who actually really wants mm. Brexit done, but he's not going to say it in those terms. But there are other MPs who are much more open about saying, you know, frankly, we would now vote for anything. You know, stick a bow on it, call it Brexit, it's done. Um, so that's and there, you know, there's a you know, couple of dozen maybe of those. Um, the problem for them is obviously, well, there's two problems regarding them. One is um, they hate Boris Johnson even more than they mistrusted and didn't like Theresa May. And the second one, Boris Johnson's version of Brexit, as we discussed a moment ago, is much harder. Mm. And if you know, he, you're, it's one thing to bail out a Tory prime minister to do Brexit and give him a political favour. It's another thing to do it in in the name of a Brexit model that is this kind of, in there, as they would see it, turbo Thatcherite slash and burn workers' conditions and junk mm. environmental protection. So that's doubly hard for Labour MPs uh, to, to think about doing that. The other moving part is Tory MPs who are very Brexity but really desperate now. Uh, and if you could give them any kind of ladder to climb down with their dignity intact and say, oh, yeah, this is actually a brilliant deal, They'll take they it. would have done it. And they were starting to do that with the last iteration of Theresa May's sort mm. of attempt to do this. And they're, they're, the ladder you need to fashion for them is made out of the DUP. And if you can basically <laughs> bit fashion a DUP ladder where, the, where you know, Arlene Foster is saying, well, it's good enough for us, then they will all come running down that ladder and go, yeah, it's good enough for us too. And there the problem is... You know how far can you go? How, you know they've they've swallowed yeah. you know regulatory border on the Irish Sea. Now you're talking about a kind of it's it's a customs border that's actually north south, but we're just applying it east west. Yeah. You know they're really you're really pushing your luck with the DUP now. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that all sounds very promising, Jennifer. <laughs> uh, um, talks ongoing then until at least Wednesday, which of course is the day before uh, the next EU summit starts. I mean, I mean, realistically, what do you think could happen between now and then? Is there any serious chance of a, of a breakthrough on what's basically a very new idea? I mean, could something that, you know, as complex as what we've just been talking about possibly be rubber stamped by 27 leaders? Or or is it going to, I mean, if there is going to be a deal before the summit, would it have to be based on something that already exists or has already been talked about? Other wo- in other words, the, you know, the famous sort of Northern Ireland only backstop that was the, the very first proposal. Well, to answer the question in a word, is there going to be this sort of all singing unprecedented uh, Customs partnership in Northern Ireland negotiated in in three days. I think we we can all see the answer to that is no. It's just too complex mm. for for the EU to negotiate so quickly. Uh, and you know, even if there were there were months to negotiate this plan, there is still all these very serious ob- objections that we've talked about uh, that really go to the heart of all the, the values that EU holds dear about protecting its internal market, mm. which which can sound rather abstract, but often gets into very serious questions about you know how do you stop um, dangerous food getting onto the plates of European consumers? You know, people here have you know really mm. long memories, and they remember the VSE scandal. They remember more recently the horse meat scandal. They don't want to just to just Sort of put a big hole into in the back door into the EU market by by allowing you know coming up with this um, uh, customs partnership on a wing and a prayer just to get Boris Johnson over the line for the 31st of October. So it's it's really not going to fly. And and then also the other angle we talked about on the the um, having a big competitor as well on the doorstep. It's very important to get that question of, of the border right. I mean, only yesterday Angela Merkel after meeting Macron, she was she was also you know, made the point that the UK is going to be a competitor in mm. the future, just as China and, and the US is. So they're going to be very sensitive to, to managing that border. 
So I think, as you suggest, I mean, the only option is is really going back to something that already exists. And, and that's what the EU had hoped. They had hoped that Boris Johnson was signalling that he was ready to go back to the uh, the Northern Ireland only backstop, which, uh, which everyone will remember was the original EU mm. proposal, the backstop that Theresa May rejected in March 2018. She said this was an idea that no British prime minister could ever accept. But I think EU officials here had hoped that Boris Johnson might be the kind of politician that could do that political backflip uh, and bring people with him. They were very quickly disappointed. But again, that expectation was raised last week after that meeting with Varadkar in the Wirral. They thought maybe now he's he's moving in that direction. Mm. Now they understand he wants something much more complicated, but they think it's really far too late to be doing that now and uh, and and to also echo Raphael's points I mean his negotiator David Frost just has no leeway he, he doesn't have any room for maneuver he can't be create, creative in in the room with his EU counterparts uh, and there's a sort of there's un, underneath there's a there's sort of bedrock of a lack of trust in Boris Johnson and what what he's really after as well so these are such complicated political questions that they're not going to be solved in a few days and i i think this is really going to be thrown back to the eu leaders when they meet at the end of this week for their summit for and that uh, the eu chief negotiator barnier is really looking for a sort of new a new line from from EU leaders on, on where to take this process next. Mm. Okay, well, we'll start looking forward in a second. I just, uh, um, Georgina, just, I mean, you you talk often to people in the in, in the capitals. Um, I mean, what are the calculations? You referred to it just a, a, a few minutes ago with the you know the, and, and and as did Raph on the you know sort of whole question of regulatory uh, divergence and what have you in Singapore on terms of what are the calculations that are going on here in the capitals at the moment you know the, the the sort of the risks of an imperfect kind of rush job versus an extension versus the danger of no deal I mean you know, I mean it's clear now at least that everybody wants a deal but there are some very fundamental questions for the EU here still that, that they will want real firm answers to yeah absolutely um, I think as you said the EU want a deal just like the British government but not at all costs Um, they are worried uh, about the future they're worried about how you patrol that border how you ensure that goods um, you know respect EU standards um, um, if they are to make their way into the EU market that you know they do respect all those rules that they've been controlled properly checked properly Um, but the other consideration they have is they just don't want this process hanging over their heads you know we have a new commission that's about Mm. to start now whether or not that new commission can start at the begin- beginning of November. Not sure because not all parliamentary hearings for the new commissioners went well. We know um, France's mm. commissioner candidate didn't didn't make it through, for example. So it might be that that new commission is now delayed. But either way, they've got lots to get on with. We've had you know recent conflicts between so the US, Turkey, um, lots of problems along the border. They want to return to um, the refugee crisis and, and social integration. They're thinking about Eurozone budget. There's so many. And then, of course, that seven-year EU budget. Mm. Those discussions are ongoing. If the UK remains a member state, it has a veto over that. So if we are looking at an extension, how long for? We want to make sure it's long enough that we don't sort of hit that deadline again and say, oh, we need a further delay for talks. But equally, we don't want it to be too long um, that actually the UK continues to be in the EU but isn't actually participating in any of those discussions. Mm. Can I just add another delicate calculation from the (laughs) EU side on this is sort of wanting, not what I say, not wanting to just sort of push the UK off the edge of a cliff because they can't 
you know, just to get the problem dealt with. There, there was a bit of a discussion about that over the summer. A sense of some some member states were thinking, yeah, you know what, no deal would be bad, but maybe that's the only way that that country will actually learn to understand mm. the nature of its relationship yeah. with the EU. It'll only start to look at order off the menu when it, you basically you're you've been sort of pushed out the door. Mm. Um, that's a terrible mixed metaphor. So, <laughs> but the I mean, the other crucial thing is that if you get into the argument about what an extension would do what the purpose of an extension would be you have to be very careful not to sort of frame that in terms of what uk domestic politics ought to do do you need a general election do you need a referendum because then that suddenly looks like the eu sort of mandating things inside domestic british politics and they really obviously for don't, both presentationally and in principle really don't want to be don't want to go there. there exactly okay um raf whatever happens at the summit um, you know, whether which now, as we've just discussed, seems very unlikely cut now that Johnson will come back with some kind of EU backed, you know, proposal or green light, or, you know, certainly won't come up with a deal um, or whether he comes up with nothing at all. There is an immutable fact awaiting, isn't it? When the day after the summit finishes, which is that the, the Ben Act comes into force, which obliges the British government to request an extension from the EU if no new deal has been reached by October the 19th. And Johnson has said he wants Parliament to sit that day uh, for the first time since the Falklands War. Now, there's a, I mean, there's a hell of a lot to go at here. But, you know, what what do you think he will be seeking to do on what's, what, what everyone is calling Super Saturday? And is that extension going to get asked for. I mean, if he has a deal or at least the outline of a deal, then he'll want it voted on, I imagine. If he hasn't, he might, might he try and overturn, get Parliament to overturn them? And what's going to happen? <laughs> I have the faintest idea. <laughs> Sorry, I spent all my life following this. Look, I mean, the the, the crucial question, you know, a crucial question rather, is whether uh, Boris Johnson f- feels bound by the Ben Act, you know, to, mm. which, which essentially says you can't leave on the 31st of October if you don't have a deal. Now, uh, one of the things that the sort of, as it were, the sort of the wilder side of Downing Street has been putting out in the public over the last fortnight is we have clever ways of getting around the Ben Act, but we're not going to tell you what they are. Uh, you know, the sort of Bond villain chuckle of just you waiting to see my cunning plan. <laughs> um, that reeks of another one of these sorts of stupid bluffs that isn't really very persuasive. I mean, it's just sort of, you know, I've got a girlfriend, but she's just in another town. You wouldn't know her anyway. <laughs> Playground level sort of posturing. Uh, the the sensible wing of Downing Street that believes in obeying the law has sort of let it be understood that, guess what, the Prime Minister obeys the law. So calling a session in Parliament for that Saturday, as you say, very much sort of signalling this is a wartime emergency, mm. sort of the idiom of wartime emergency, uh, looks at least partly sort of theatrically confected to create whatever the circumstances are where as long as Boris Johnson can present the requirement for an extension or or the the failure Mm. to meet the 31st of October as a kind of heroic Dunkirk type (laughs) failure for the forces of Brexit, as in this is a a brilliant retreat from what I said I was going to do as not a sign of me being weak and mobilise that kind of narrative. I think that's what he'll have to do. Mm. How you choreograph that legally, technically, uh, I'm I'm not sure. But ultimately, my gut is that the, the outcome of this is the UK doesn't leave the EU on the 31st of October and Boris Johnson somehow 
works very hard and with the compliance of a lot of his media cheerleaders mm. presents it as, Sells as, it as, as he is the Brexit martyr who must now be vindicated in the general yeah, election. Yeah. Okay, Georgine. I mean, to quickly add to that, um, obviously to have an extension, a further delay, you need a request, but you also need agreement. And those terms and conditions around the extension are going to have to be negotiated at the level of EU leaders. So are we looking at another Brexit summit um, before the 31st of October to settle those terms because we've heard that in Brussels they are discussing what an extension would look like but they're also thinking okay well what 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 is the British government ready to accept um, because we need agreement on both sides so um, again it's going to be really interesting because it's not only about asking it's then about it's figuring about the out how long it's going exactly. to last for what the UK is expected to do and I think if there is going to be a debate in this country about whether an extension should go ahead or not the EU will want to stay well clear of that and give the UK a couple of days to sort of have that debate and then reconvene. Okay and Jennifer what's your feeling on that about this the, the idea I mean there's no question that uh, I mean an extension would be granted if it, if it was asked for wouldn't it but what about this debate about the about I mean, for example how long it might last? I think that's the real heart of the question I mean I've no doubt that EU leaders arriving at the summit on Thursday they will say well we'll only grant an extension for a very good reason but I think in reality everyone has more or less decided that an extension will be granted in for almost any reason because the EU once again does not want to push the UK out of the door albeit over the summer there were an increasing number of countries who decided that uh, Emmanuel Macron was was right in April. He was right to argue to, for a tough line on this, that the UK should not be given lots of time, that it really needed a short time to make up its mind. And I think that the debate at the summit will really, when it comes to extension, will really about should it be a short extension, should it be a long extension, um, this this whole sort of Goldilocks problem that you, you don't want to, to keep the, the UK, don't have the UK in the EU indefinitely without really knowing how it's going to resolve the Brexit crisis. But then if you give a very short extension, then possibly in in three months' time, you're giving another short extension as well. So I don't really think we'll have a sense of how that's going to be resolved until the summit itself, because as we've seen in the the previous two extensions, they've been very unpredictable Mm. and they've they've actually emerged from the summit in quite a different way to the the proposals that were going into the summit. So I think we should sort of take a pinch of salt with any sort of predictions that in the next couple of days that the EU is definitely going to offer nine months or three months or or, or, you know, however how long the, the time might be. But it is a real dilemma for the EU. And there's this, this sort of sense of extension angst among diplomats, mm. this sense of despair that once again, they are talking about a, an extension uh, of Brexit, an extension they fear will be fruitless, but the alternative looks worse. So so it does, at this, at this moment, feel that that's, that's what we're heading for, another Brexit extension. And an extension that comes again at a crucial time for the EU mm. before it was just before European Parliament elections does the UK organise European Parliament elections it has to if it's going to remain a member state past a certain date mm. and now we're on the cusp of a new yeah. EU commission does the UK need to appoint a British commissioner if it's going to remain a member state past a certain time does it need to appoint a second judge to the European Court of Justice I mean all these really kind of organisational institutional questions Christians that are going to be will come into play yeah, absolutely exactly although it does look like the UK is now going to, to get a bit of an extension with the current um, we're all going to get an extension with the current commission 
submission. Yeah. So some of those questions will be deferred. But yeah, it, it does come at another sort of really packed moment on the EU agenda. And of course, the closer we get to, to decisions on the EU's long-term budget, then the, the harder it will be for the EU to keep the keep granting the UK extensions with mm. the risk of a potential veto over that future budget. Of course, yeah. Okay. Um, Raphael, one other thing I wanted to just... Um, come on to uh, and that's the the kind of the nature of the Boris Johnson deal or proposal whatever you want to call it I mean th- there was a letter published last week wasn't there by some of Britain's leading industrial sectors so the car industry aerospace pharmaceuticals and so on and a very interesting paper by the UK in a changing Europe think tank all of it basic all of them basically laying out the fact that economically Johnson's proposed deal is actually significantly worse than May's and not much better than a WTO exit in fact so in other words the kind of the cost of solving the Northern Ireland problem if that's what's being done in a kind of a way that's acceptable to everybody albeit very immensely complicated and bureaucratic and expensive and everything would we know would but cost of doing that would be to actually increase the degree of harm that's going to be done to england wales and scotland is that going to start to play into the the debate at uh, all? you'd hope so but i'm not very <laughs> confident about that for, for a simple reason which is that i mean one of the important things that's happened in the last sort of six seven months but and, and then accelerated since boris johnson got into number 10 which is that the debate about the rights and wrongs of brexit itself or, or mm. the, the benefit cost benefit equation regarding UK leaving the European Union has become packed into this question of no deal or any deal. Uh, and and one of the reasons that's happened actually is, is the complicity of the Labour Party in the opposition because Jeremy Corbyn found that by opposing no deal, he was able to adopt a lot of rhetorical postures that sounded enough like you were sort of opposing Brexit to satisfy your very Remain base mm. in the Labour Party without actually ever getting into the fundamental strategic question of the wisdom of leaving the European Union or on what terms you'd want to do it and specifically whether or not you'd want to stay in a single market. So a sort of a Jeremy Corbyn ideal Brexit actually gets you out of the single market because actually once some of the things he objects to are things like state aid rules and competition mm. laws. So, But he never articulates that because it upsets um, a lot of Labour members. Um, so we, we, we sort of parked the, some of the broader questions of what kind of Brexit would be a good idea. Mm. Uh, and Westminster and UK politics generally got obsessed with the thing that would very, very obviously be a terrible idea, which is no deal. And so now we're trying to sort of walk it back into this question of, well, hang on, if we're having a deal, is this a, a good deal or not? Uh, and the, the, the terms of what is a hard or a soft Brexit have changed a lot. So now it's sort of taken for granted that obviously a proper Brexit, in, in quotes, um, involves leaving the single market. Whereas two years ago, the question, and the customs union, and two years ago, there was a question about whether actually you wanted to generate that amount of friction in trade um, with the EU. And, and so this is the final point on that is when Boris Johnson sort of concedes some of these points about the customs union or regulatory borders or Northern Ireland and, and you sort of zero in on the those arguments as they relate to Northern Ireland, it does slightly reopen a window on why are we introducing such huge amounts mm. of friction in our trade at Calais if we don't want to do it at Northern Ireland either. Mm. Uh, I mean, we obviously, we know what the particular specific you know, the, the legacy of the troubles and the difficulties around Northern Ireland are. But you would hope that this would reopen a question about about relation, future relationship with the single market. But, but it doesn't. Not I'm not particularly holding optimistic breath, no. about that. OK, we're beginning to run out of time. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, Jennifer, um, the European Parliament, we shouldn't forget, 
is going to have to approve whatever deal does get reached. Is that a foregone conclusion? I mean, David Sassoli, who was who's the new president of the, of the European Parliament, I mean, he wasn't very enthusiastic when he was in Downing Street last week, was he? And neither, of course, was, was, was Guy Verhofstadt. I mean, should we take it for granted that, that the European Parliament won't, will, will not sort of kick up a fuss? Well, it's been a really interesting dynamic throughout this whole Brexit process that on the one hand you have Michel Barnier who he sort of evokes this air of disappointment when the UK hands in its homework three months late and, and isn't actually uh, completing the task in hand. And then on the other, ha- on the other side you have uh, the European Parliament threatening a month of detention and sounding all serious and saying we're going to vote down the deal. But I think actually what, what is happening is that the European Parliament are, are really outriders for protecting the EU red lines. And when it comes down to it, if there is a deal on the table, the EU European Parliament's concerns will already have been taken into account and will be sort of in, in that deal. And I think that's really a reflection of, of also the, the perhaps an underappreciated part of, um, of Barnier's role, that he's not only been leading negotiations with the UK, but he's been managing all the different players within the EU world. And he's been very um, attentive to the European Parliament. He's been on the phone non-stop to Guy Verhofstadt. He's always going across to see the Brexit steering group to update them and and, and to tell them what's going on and, and how he sees the, the state of play. And I think that's that's really helped to keep the Parliament on, on side. Mm. And it was that sort of that intuition uh, of Barnier's that you can't just treat the Parliament as an afterthought; that you have to to bring them. Um, they have to be brought you. along mm. as part of the process. So I think if if we do get to the situation of, of having a deal on the table, which doesn't feel very imminent, I think that the Parliament will be will already be sort of part of. Um, they'll be part of that EU coalition sort of supporting acquired. supporting the yeah. deal, and and the actual vote will become a formality. It's been a real learning curve for the UK to kind of learn how to negotiate with the EU as an outgoing member state, because it's very different when you're a big member state mm. calling the shots when you're as opposed to when you're leaving and you can't really build coalitions with other member states. And I think it's going to be there's going to be a second learning curve when we if and when we enter that next phase of negotiations about the future because the European Parliament there will be much more interventionist. Mm. They will have their own views. You can see it with any trade negotiation that the Commission leads on. Um, you know, they'll they'll go through months and months of negotiations, they'll have a deal, it then goes through the European Parliament and it gets completely broken down and we don't like this, we don't like this. So I think the next, you know, if we think these negotiations have been complicated, let's just wait until the next phase. Okay, and and Raphael, just very, very quickly before I ask for your conclusions, um, I mean, uh, domestic politics could also sort of erupt into this as well could they not in that i mean there is going to have to be a, the queen's speech as we're recording this this queen's speech is underway there will have to be a vote on that what happens if he loses uh well that's a very good question i mean essentially <laughs> the uh, a lot of all of this depend on uh, an internal argument that is happening within the opposition about whether their their preference is to try and engineer a general election which appears to be jeremy corbyn's preferred mm. outcome or whether that's not such a great idea uh, because you might lose for a start um, uh, and whether it is better therefore to apply your capacity at will to withdraw Boris Johnson's majority to uh, make other demands whether with regard to the extension or uh, even a referendum although again that doesn't feel particularly imminent so uh, the, the defeat I mean traditionally obviously if you're defeating if you defeat the the Queen's speech um, 
uh, once upon a time that would have essentially meant the end uh, of the a confidence issue in the mm. end of the government. Georgie will know better than me. Now, because of our friend, the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, you would still need literally to go through the mechanism mandated by that act to turn it into a general election type situation. So I don't think this will be the trigger for that. But what it is, is a moment where the Labour Party has to sort of decide how it uses the power it now has to at will deprive the government of a majority. OK, right. Well, we really are out of time now. So the, the um, next tradition, it's now traditional crystal ball time. Next Brexit means we'll be in mid-November. Where will we be by then, Jennifer? I think extension followed by election, um, building up to a campaign with the technical talks in the freezer. Okay. Georgina? Yeah, I think we'll probably be in extension territory, but I don't like to take bets on these things because it changes all the time. So who knows? But I think either way, even if we do reach a deal in principle this week, we're going to have to have a short delay for ratification purposes. Mid-November, we will still be in the EU, Raf. Uh, yeah, that's my instincts as well. And if you'd asked me a week ago, I probably would have said we'd be in the middle of a general election campaign. But speaking to people in Westminster in the last 48 hours and looking at some of the eruptions going on in the Labour Party, I'm now thinking that might not happen either. OK, well, one thing that is absolutely certain is that Brexit means we'll be back in a month's time and there'll still be plenty to talk about. That really is it for this uh, particularly heartening episode. My thanks to Georgina, Jennifer and Raphael. Uh, Brexit means, as I said, be back in a little under four weeks' time. In the meantime, please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, please do. It's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Catherine Godfrey. This was Brexit Means, and thank you all very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.